Hey, and welcome to another episode of Questions. My name is Nathan Elam, and I wanted to take a quick moment to remind you about Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? You can find this online in our store at rightresponseministries.com. We would love to send you a copy. We also have an ebook version available. And so hop online, go to our store, and uh, we would love to send this out to you for your gift of any amount. So today's question is a broader question that we receive uh, from quite a few people online via all of our platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And so we wanted to go ahead and address that here uh, with Pastor Joel today, and I'm sure it's come up a lot as well in his personal ministry through the church. And so uh, the question is, Pastor Joel, could you briefly explain each of the five points of Calvinism and explain the logical and biblical significance of this particular theological system. So, Pastor Joel, what does God's Word have to say about Calvinism? Thanks, Nathan. Um, for the sake of brevity and clarity, I'm going to break uh, my answer up into five parts, uh, each part focusing on one of the five points of Calvinism. Uh, a little bit of an overview. We have five points of Calvinism. They are as follows. Number one, total depravity total depravity. Number two, unconditional election. Number three, limited atonement. Number four, irresistible grace. And number five, perseverance of the saints. Again, that's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so for this episode, I'm going to focus in on total depravity. I want to start by uh, reading three different biblical texts. There are others that we could look at, but I think these three will suffice. Uh, so let's begin by looking at Romans chapter 3, verse 11 through 12. Um, this is Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The Bible says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become utterly worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if you've ever been curious about God's anthropology, that is God's view of mankind, well, here we have it. This is what God says about people. Apart from the saving work of Christ, apart from regeneration, receiving a new heart by the power of the Spirit, this is an accurate and truthful depiction of every single human being in the sight of God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one even seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become utterly worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's one text. That's God's anthropology. It's not particularly flattering, is it? <laughs> That's who we are, apart from Christ. Another text is Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, verse 7 and 8 says this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, not merely indifferent or neutral or even uninterested, right? The Bible doesn't say that, you know, the, the person who is not a Christian, 
right? The person who has an unregenerate heart and a depraved mind that has not been renewed, right? And transformed by, by the washing of the word. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that that individual has a mind that is neutral or indifferent or even uninterested in the things of God, but rather the word that is used is hostile. The mind that is set on the flesh is actually at enmity with God, in opposition to God, hostile to God. For, why? Well, because it does not submit. The mind of the reprobate, the mind of the sinner, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, the text goes further, it cannot. It does not and it cannot. The mind of the sinful man does not submit to God and his authority and his law, and it cannot submit to God and his authority and his law. So the mind of the sinner, apart from salvation in Christ, by grace through faith in Christ alone, the mind of the sinner is not only unwilling, it does not submit to God, it's not not merely unwilling, but it cannot submit to God, meaning it is also unable, unwilling and unable. Now, Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, not just that they do not please God or will not please God, but they cannot. It is an impossibility. It is something that that the sinner, apart from a work of God, apart from conversion, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the sinner is incapable of pleasing God and incapable of truly submitting to God, his law and his authority. One more text now. This is Ephesians Chapter 2, again, God's anthropology, God's view of mankind apart from his saving grace. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the Bible says, And you were, right? so Paul the Apostle is the author of this letter. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, so he's writing to Christians. So he's speaking of their previous state, not who they are, because they have been saved by grace through faith in Christ but he is speaking to who they once were. And you were dead. Not just sick, not just ill, not just declining in spiritual health, but you were completely and utterly dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, you were not following God's truth, his revealed will, the Spirit, or Christ, but rather you were dead in your sins and trespasses and were actively following, dead in regards to your affection toward God and submission to His law, but very much at the same time alive in regards to your willing submission and devotion to following the world following the course of this world, which is at enmity with God. And not only following the course of this world, but, the text continues, following the prince of the power of the air, 
that is, the devil. Dead in terms of affection and obedience toward God, but alive in terms of devotion and allegiance and love, affection toward the world and the devil. Following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, look at that, that's, that's key. That's something that, that we have to, we can't pass over because there are some who would look at texts like this that I'm referring to as God's anthropology, that is God's view of all people all of mankind, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. But there are some who would argue that, oh, well, this is just particular to certain people who had chosen willfully to harden their hearts against God's revelation, right? God revealed himself to certain people like the Jews, for instance. And yet, because they chose, right, Jesus, the Bible says he came to his own, but they knew him not. He's rejected and despised. And so because the Jewish people the people of Israel had Christ come to them in the flesh, right? The final revelation of God, Hebrews 1 says, Jesus, he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He's the fullness of the radiance of God's glory. He is the perfect word, the, the word incarnate, the living word come from God, the final revelation. And because certain people, especially the Jewish people, did not receive him, but rather rejected him and rather chose to willfully harden their hearts against Christ, his person and his work. These individuals, therefore, not all people, but these individuals are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sin. There are some who would make that argument, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Again, it continues, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest, that is, like the rest of the whole of mankind. So Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, I think is, really helpful, not only in its depiction of fallen humanity, but also in its very clear description of the scope of total depravity. Right? So all three of these texts, Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 8, the mind of the sinful man is hostile, not just indifferent, but hostile toward God and his law. Romans 3 and Romans 8, I think, are helpful in terms of the depiction of the sinner and the state of enmity and opposition that the sinner is in apart from God's saving work through Christ Jesus. But Ephesians chapter 2 is helpful not only in a depiction of what total depravity looks like for each individual, but also in a very detailed, a very clear description that this, this condition of man, namely total depravity, is universal in its scope. It encompasses all. The apostle is very clear that we once, 
all of us once lived according to our sinful passions and were dead in our trespasses and were following the course of this world and following the devil. All of us. And we were, because of that, we were all underneath the just condemnation of God. We were like, we were like men on death row, dead men walking, dead in our trespasses and simply awaiting the time of judgment to ultimately receive God's condemnation. We were under his condemnation, children of wrath. But, but what does it say? It says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we all, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians, he says, all of us, all Christians, Gentiles and Jews alike, were once spiritually dead, totally depraved. And because we are spiritually dead, dead in terms of our devotion toward God, but very much alive in terms of our devotion towards sin, the world, and the devil, and because of this, this state of total depravity, we were under God's wrath. Like who? Like everyone else. Like the rest of mankind. Everyone begins this life in a state of enmity toward God. Everyone, every human being, man, woman, and child, begins this life with a mind that is not only indifferent or uninterested, but hostile toward God. Everyone begins this life not only lacking devotion and allegiance and submission to God, but also lacking any sense of interest whatsoever. Romans 3 again says that no one does good, but it also says no one even seeks for God. Have you ever thought about that? Right? The idea of seeker-sensitive church. Well, the reason why that's not a good idea is because the Bible plainly tells us that there's no such thing as a seeker. Not in terms of men. There is one seeker, namely God himself. Well, I believe it was Spurgeon who called him the hound of heaven. That he hunts down, as it were, the souls of men. God seeks for us, but no one apart from his saving grace seeks for him. And you might say, well, how does that correspond with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, where we are commanded by Christ to knock and the door will be opened, to ask and we will receive, to seek. The word is used, seek, and we will find. Well, the simplest explanation is that Jesus is speaking toward those who are his disciples, those who are already regenerate, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, by grace through faith in Christ, who viewed him as the Messiah. And because they now have new hearts, because they are now a new creation by a sovereign work of God and no credit to their them, themselves, but because they are a new creation with a new heart, with the gifts of faith and repentance, they are able to seek and find, knock and have the door opened, ask, and therefore receive. So the Christian is a seeker of God, but the non-Christian does not do what is good, according to Romans 3, but even beyond that, the non-Christian does not even seek for God. So Romans 3 and Romans 8, among many other passages, but these especially, give us a description of the state of humanity apart from God's saving grace at enmity toward God, um, hostile toward God, dead 
in sin. It's not just sick and needing to make some improvements and maybe change our diet and maybe take some medicine and maybe try to exercise a little bit so that we could improve our spiritual health. No, a, a dead man can't do anything. The, the language that the Bible um, uses to describe mankind apart from Christ is not that mankind is sick and on the decline, but still has the opportunity to, to perhaps make some changes in order to, to improve their state. No, the, the Bible doesn't say it's the bottom of the ninth. No, the Bible says the game is over. The stands are empty. It's not somebody, you know, who's treading water in the middle of the ocean, hoping that, that the proverbial lifeguard might throw them a floaty. <laughs> No, the, the, the Bible's depiction of man apart from salvation is that he's a bloated corpse lying on the bottom of the sea. The salvation is not healing as much as salvation is resurrection. In salvation, what Jesus does is he brings the dead to life, not just the sick to health. The Bible uses that kind of language, but... But in a more literal sense, the clearest depiction that we have is that we are going from death to life, not just illness to health, but death to life. So the description of total depravity is that people are dead in their sins at enmity and hostility toward God, not only unwilling to do that which is good, but unable to obey God and submit to his law not just failing to do what's right, but even failing to seek God or, or possess any real, genuine, spirit-wrought interest toward God. And who does this encompass? What is the scope of this total depravity? The rest of mankind. All of mankind. Every Christian once was this, is the language in Ephesians 2. So all Christians once were totally depraved and children of wrath like who? Like everyone else. The scope is universal. So total depravity is the doctrine that basically simply describes for us God's anthropology. That again is God's view of mankind apart from his saving grace, which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are spiritually dead in our sins. We are at enmity with God. We are unable and unwilling to do good or even seek for God. And this is the state of the whole of mankind. Now, total depravity should be distinguished from utter depravity. So let me finish by explaining this. Utter depravity is the idea that, that each human being is doing as much evil at the heart level, but also outwardly with their words, with their actions and behaviors. Utter depravity is that a human being is doing as much possible evil as they could. The Bible does not teach that man is utterly depraved. So that we have to hold intention to two different things in terms of anthropology. Who is man? On the one hand, we're totally depraved. We are dead in our sins and at enmity toward God. But on the other hand, we have the Imago Dei. As human beings, we have been created in the image of God. 
And because we still bear, although it's a marred image by sin, we still bear a vestige of the image of God. And because we bear a marred image of God, but an image of God nonetheless, and because of God's common grace in this, human beings, even apart from salvation in Christ, are still capable of doing many wonderful things outwardly, both in word and in deed, that do, in fact, align with God's moral law. For instance, an atheist could be very dedicated and committed to never cheating on their taxes because they bear the image of God. And in bearing the image of God, they have a conscience. And their conscience will not allow them to lie or to steal or to cheat. An atheist, again, could, could choose to be faithful, to exercise fidelity in marriage and not commit outward acts of sexual immorality. But the reason why they may be doing things in their word or in their deed that aligns with the moral will of God, and yet still we can say that they're still totally depraved, dead in their sins, is because although they're doing things outwardly that align with the will of God, they are not doing these things in faith. So that's an important piece. The scripture says in Romans chapter 14 that without faith, well, that's actually Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14 says that anything that is not done in faith is sin. So what does it mean to do something in faith? Well, first, we should establish that only the Christian who has been born again by the Spirit of God, by grace through faith in Christ, who is a new creation in Christ Jesus with a new heart and a new set of desires, only the Christian is actually capable of doing anything in faith. Apart from regeneration, apart from conversion, a person is not capable of doing anything in faith. Now, what does it mean to do something in faith? The way that I've defined this, that I think is the simplest and easiest to understand and still biblically faithful and accurate, is that to do something in faith is to do something with a reliance on God's grace and a desire for God's glory. I'll say that again. To do something in faith is to do it with a reliance on God's grace and a desire for God's glory. Meaning this, the non-believer could devote their entire life to curing cancer for the good of mankind. And yet, they will not do it with a reliance on God's grace, meaning they will not do it with a humble acknowledgement and admission that everything they do ultimately tracks back to the generosity and providence of God. They won't acknowledge that God is the one who gave them their intellect. God is the one who, who equipped them with their abilities and gifts and resources. God is the one who providentially has placed them in this period of time in history to have all the resources at their disposal in order to do incredible things like curing cancer. And so an unbeliever could do something outwardly for the good of mankind and yet still not be pleasing to God, still totally depraved, not utterly depraved, doing outwardly good deeds but still totally depraved because they're not doing it in faith. And therefore, it is sin. Again, Romans 14. Anything 
that is not done in faith is sin. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. They're not doing it in faith, meaning they're not doing it with a reliance on God's grace. There's no acknowledgement of God. It's all about them, their capabilities, their achievements. And not only to not do something in faith is to not do it with a reliance on God's grace, but also to not do it with a desire or to do something without the desire, I should say, to bring God glory. Doing something in faith, let me say it this way, I made it a little bit confusing there. To do something with faith is to do it with a reliance on God's grace and a desire for His glory. The non-believer can do many outwardly good things and even say many outwardly good words, moral words, but they will never do any of these things or say any of these things while acknowledging and giving credit to God for His grace and they're not going to cure cancer with the ultimate aim of bringing glory to God. See, they're going to cure cancer, just using that as a hypothetical scenario. They'll cure cancer, but with a reliance on their own strength and a desire for their own glory. Or, to play the devil's advocate, in a best case scenario, they do it with a reliance on their own strength and the strength of their colleagues. Right? Couldn't have done this without the team. Right? That kind of language. So they do it with a reliance on not just their own strength, but on the strength of humanity, and not just for their own glory, but right one small step for, for man, one giant leap for mankind. right? So they do it with a, a, a reliance on the strength of humanity as a whole, and with a desire for the glory of humanity as a whole. So in a best case scenario, the unbeliever, maybe they don't just do it with a reliance on themselves, in a desire for glory for themselves. Maybe it's a team collective kind of thing where they do it with a reliance on, on the collective strength and gifts of, of others. And they do it with the desire, the, the ultimate aim of, of the good of humanity and the glory of humanity. But still, even in that equation, there's no acknowledgement of God's grace and no desire for God's glory. It's not done in faith. Therefore, it's not pleasing to God. Therefore, it is sin. So we have to hold intention. Uh, the reality that when in terms of anthropology, according to Scripture, man is totally depraved and yet not utterly depraved. He's totally depraved in the sense that he is dead in his sins and at enmity toward God, but not utterly depraved in the sense that he still bears a vestige of the image of God created in the image of God, and therefore can do many wonderful things that outwardly align with God's moral will, but none of these things are actually done in faith. There's no acknowledgement of God's grace. There's no earnest desire for God's glory. So, not utterly depraved, but still totally depraved. And the whole point in this, in terms of the five points of Calvinism, is that total depravity is the foundation for the Calvinistic system of theology. Because, the Bible says, that men are actually not just sick, not just the bottom of the ninth, not just on the decline, but still having some kind of opportunity, still having some kind of ability to improve their own situation. But because the Bible does not teach sickness in our transgressions, but rather a state of being spiritually 
dead because of the doctrine of total depravity that man is dead in his sins it therefore only logically follows that if god is to save anyone it must be a whole work of god a dead person cannot contribute to their own salvation when jesus raises lazarus from the dead it's all jesus it's not teamwork making the dream work. It's Jesus on his own commanding Lazarus, come forth. What was Lazarus' contribution? The rotting stench of his dead corpse. I can't remember exactly who it was, but one Reformed theologian said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. That's it. So if the Bible teaches total depravity, that man is dead and cannot lift a finger toward his own salvation, then it only logically would follow that if God were to save anyone, it would have to be a whole work of God. And if God were to set any conditions in man for selecting who he would save and who he would not, well, a dead person can't meet any of those conditions. So the second point of Calvinism that we'll come to in our next episode is unconditional election, which if you, if you can grasp total depravity, and that's why we start there, if you can grasp and understand total depravity, then not only biblically, but also logically, unconditional election only makes sense. If man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and if God has determined before the foundations of the world to save some, then the sum that God saves must be selected by God, chosen by God, unconditionally. Because the sea, the mass of humanity, is dead and therefore cannot meet any conditions that God might set. All right. Hope that's helpful. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.